Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are prepared for study of God's Word. Scripture teaches us that whenever we sin as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are out of fellowship. We break fellowship with God by sin, and we grieve the Holy Spirit. The only way to recover uh, fellowship, to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and to resume our spiritual life is to use the principle of 1 John 1, 9, which is to confess our sins to God the Father. Confession is a matter of the privacy of the believer. It is between the individual believer and God. Sin is nobody else's business. When we sin, we break God's law, so sin is always against God. So confession is always directed to God the Father. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word and to concentrate. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for this privilege that we have to gather together as a body of believers to study your word. We thank you for the fact that your word communicates to us absolute truth, that you stand outside the box of creation, outside the box of uh, the finite universe, and you address the issues in creation as you have created things, and you inform us how things are from a vantage point of ultimate reality. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might uh, once again be challenged in our own thinking, that we might learn to look at life and to evaluate life and to interpret the details of life from an infinite vantage point based upon your revelation. We pray that you challenge us in our own spiritual life, that we are not here simply for the purpose of living our lives, chasing after our own desires and goals and, and living for our own pleasures, but that we are here for a purpose, and that purpose as believers is to represent you in this world, and therefore we are challenged in the realm of personal witnessing and evangelism. So, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to that challenge today, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We continue this morning in our study of 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is a fun chapter. There's some tremendous implications in this chapter as we have already and we've already seen some of them. First Corinthians chapter 1 addresses the fundamental problem which uh, was the root of all of the problems in Corinth. It's been uh, a fun and enjoyable thing for me to go through these chapters. It's a little difficult sometimes. First thing on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m., to hit some of the more profound implications of what Paul is saying. That's okay. Everybody drops one now and then, so don't feel too bad. 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 deal with the underlying issue in the church of Corinth, which had to do with the fact that, that they were still thinking about life primarily from the framework of their own cultural background as Greeks. 
and therefore Paul is juxtaposing this this conflict between the way we think the way man thinks human wisdom what we call human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint and what Paul is saying if you boil all of this down is that divine viewpoint is the only way for the believer to look at life and if you don't understand divine viewpoint and have the thinking in your soul transformed by the word of god so that you think about life the way god has defined it in his creation then there will always be problems and that ultimately what we do is a result of how we think now that really flies in the face of a lot of uh, cultural problems that we have in the u.s for example we live in in a country and in a culture that has been dominated by pragmatism and so most of us are very pragmatic what what works is what what's good and we carry that out in many areas of our life and unfortunately the church has been seriously infected by the plague of pragmatism and as we have seen in chapter 2 Paul is addressing the subject of witnessing we covered that some last week and that's the primary thing that we'll address this morning is the doctrine of witnessing but uh, witnessing has been seriously affected by the uh, cultural concept of, of uh, our cultural thinking of pragmatism what works is must be right. Therefore, if you go out and you have a crusade, an evangelistic crusade, and you have uh, 20,000 people show up and 5,000 people walk the aisle and come down front and make a profession of faith, and that must be the way to do it. In other words, it works, something produce some level of visible results, and therefore that must be the correct methodology or that must be a valid methodology. Rather than looking at the underlying presuppositions and the underlying theological assumptions that gave rise historically to this whole concept of uh, having people walk the aisle, come forward, and make a profession of faith. No, that didn't come out of any other country. That That is something that's uniquely American, born and bred here, and has its roots in the... Um, Really, the pagan thinking of a Christian evangelist, that sounds like an oxymoron, nevertheless it's true. The pagan thinking of a man named Charles Grandison Finney, who was an evangelist in what was called the um, the Second Great Awakening, which took place in the early 1800s. He was a lawyer from upstate New York, and he rejected, as part of his theological framework, he rejected the total depravity of man. He rejected the substitutionary atonement. He was a post-millennialist. He believed that, that somehow man, by on his own efforts, after a, a moral reformation, he equated spirituality with morality. Therefore, uh, Finneyism gave birth to deep and profound legalism in the church that is still with us today. In fact, a lot of what people identify as... Puritan legalism really isn't Puritan legalism. It is the legalism in this country that has its roots in the Second Great Awakening, not in the Puritans. Because the Second Great Awakening, if your starting point is that man is not totally depraved, that man is basically good, and that man can reform himself and be good, and that the issue is not a substitutionary atonement but simply following the example of Christ, then, of course, man can improve himself. And that is the root of legalism. And that dominated the thinking of what was called the Second Great Awakening, which if you read a lot of uh, books written by people who don't understand the gospel and don't understand Finney, they'll say that was a great revival in this nation and changed things. And I personally believe that since uh, Finney didn't have a clear understanding of the gospel, 
it was not a true revival in the sense that the first great awakening in this country was, which uh, clearly proclaimed the gospel, and many people were saved by coming to faith alone in Christ alone. And so the results of Finneyism have plagued this country, and, and, and I've talked about some of these things in the past, but they, the results of Finneyism and the Second Great Awakening have plagued this nation for the last 200 years. Everything from, um, from race problems as a result of the uh, wrong way the abolitionists handled the problem. Finney was a, sort of a father of abolitionism in this country. Um, the way the American abolitionists handled the problem was radically different from the way the British abolitionists handled the problem. And that is because in Britain, the leaders of the abolitionist movement were evangelical Christians who truly understood the issues of grace and the man was totally depraved. And the point I am making is what you do and how you handle a situation is the result of ultimately of what you think. And if you just get involved in methodology because it appears to work without looking at the undergirding theology, uh, you're going to end up in some sort of problems eventually. And human viewpoint is always grounded in arrogance because it believes that man on his own apart from God can somehow come to an understanding of truth. Nothing is more arrogant than for the creature to think he can outthink the creator. And so arrogance always results in some level of... uh, of the distortion and some level of of uh, implosion and fragmentation, and that's exactly what we see in the whole illustration with slavery. But you also have other social problems that were attempted. The solution was attempted coming out of the uh, Second Great Awakening on all kinds of human viewpoint systems uh, of solution, and evangelism was one of them. And so the the whole concept of revivalism and revivals in this country came out of this country and came out of the Second Great Awakening, and it was all based on the idea that if you had the right technique, the right methodology, did the right thing, then you could get people to convert to Christianity because the problem wasn't that they had an evil heart. The problem wasn't that man was basically a sinner in rebellion against God. The problem was that he just wasn't correctly motivated. And so Finney developed things like the walking the aisle invitation, the anxious bench, all kinds of psychological manipulative techniques in order to get people to convert to Christianity. But once again, as I pointed out, the Christianity, the gospel that they were being converted to, wasn't a biblical gospel. It was a gospel of work salvation and a gospel that was ultimately legalistic. And so uh, whether we're talking about first century Corinth and the horrible consequences of uh, pagan philosophy from Aristotle and, and uh, Plato on their thinking, or whether we're talking about 21st century America and the impact of uh, secular philosophical concepts and what the Bible calls, really is what the Bible calls worldliness on our thinking is pretty much the same thing and has resulted in the same problem. That is a fragmented church, a church that has diluted biblical truth to the point that it has very little impact in people's lives. And we look around sometimes as Christians and we read passages like uh, John uh, 
8, where Jesus said, if you know the truth, that is, if you know the Word of God, you know Bible doctrine, the truth will set you free. People wonder, well, why don't I experience this kind of freedom? Read John 15, where Jesus said, if you, my Word abides in you, then, then you will have my joy. And Christians wonder, why don't I have the kind of joy that Jesus promised me? And it's because we have a diluted concept of biblical truth because what's happened is that we have watered it down and we've mixed it with so much human viewpoint that we no longer recognize pure, radical, divine viewpoint. When we do, we think, well, that that's somehow just too radical. Scripture really doesn't mean that. But that's what Scripture does mean, and divine viewpoint is always based on the concept of grace. And that just flies in the face of all of man's legalistic efforts to somehow uh, improve upon God's way of doing things. Now, Paul is addressing this because he recognizes in Corinth, that the root problem is that as these people were saved, coming out of the pagan culture of, of uh, Corinthian Greek, Greece, that they were coming into the church with this baggage, this philosophical baggage, this cultural baggage, this cultural value system, cultural way of thinking, cultural approach to life and to problem solving. And while they were changing a few things superficially in their life, which is what happens with most Christians, you, you see people many times, they, they come to a point of salvation. Somebody witnesses to them. They understand that, that they need salvation, that as a sinner they're under condemnation from God and eternal condemnation and eternal punishment. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And that by faith alone in Christ alone, we have a free gift of salvation. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is a free gift. Well, then they come into the church, and many times what you discover is that people are particularly responsive to the gospel when they're going through crises in their lives. You see this sometimes with with teenagers, sometimes with young adults. They're, they're sort of at the end of their rope. Maybe they've tried all the uh, cultural solutions to happiness. They've tried drugs. They've tried sex. They've tried uh, success in school, academics, business success, whatever it is. They come up empty, and they're looking for something. And, and suddenly they hear the gospel. They respond to the gospel, and there's an initial enthusiasm and a desire to to learn the word and to answer so many of life's questions, uh, questions about uh, the ultimate purpose of life, meaning of life, values, what's God like, uh, really understanding salvation. But, but what happens is they get involved in some church, and the emphasis is on changing behavior patterns. You know, you don't want to go be involved with certain kinds of people. You don't want to engage in certain activities. You know, you don't want to drink. You don't want to smoke. You don't want to be involved in certain uh, activities. And it's usually defined fairly superficially. And then uh, uh, they, they sort of renovate the exterior of their life, but there's no real change on the inside. So they're still thinking like they thought before they were saved, but they're acting differently. Well, sooner or later, under the pressures of life, that house of cards will collapse because what the Scripture teaches is if we don't change the way we think and begin to think biblically about life, then ultimately we will come under a position or come under a testing or come under a certain amount of pressure, and we're going to wonder where God is. And then the next thing you know, people are going to say, well, Christianity really doesn't work, and they throw it out. And I've seen that happen a number of times, and it's simply because people never understood the word. 
They might have doctrinal notebooks three inches thick, but they never really understood it. It never really transformed the way they thought about life. Doctrine did not become a way of life for them, whereas attendance in Bible class might have become a way of life for them. Don't confuse the two. Just because you're here two or three times a week doesn't mean doctrine is uh, a way of life for you. It just means going to church, going to Bible class is a way of life for you. What you do with the doctrine you learn uh, the rest of the week deter- is, this, is uh, uh, what determines whether or not doctrine is your life or not. So Paul is addressing these foundational problems. Before he can address the key issues, the real problems that are facing this congregation, he has to address the underlying problem. Before he can deal with the marriage problems, before he can deal with the fact that they're taking each other to court, the uh, interpersonal conflicts in the church, before he can deal with the fact that people are all confused about different uh, role relationships within the church, leadership responsibility, spiritual gifts, before he can deal with any of those things, he has to deal with these underlying issues first. And the underlying issue is always how you think. Now, this gets a little tough sometimes, especially early on a, on a Sunday morning, but let's just try to see if we can understand this. The end result of how you do what you do is your methodology. So in evangelism, we have a certain amount of our witnessing. We have a certain methodology, how you go about witnessing to somebody. Well, methodology just doesn't pop up in a vacuum. You don't just sit around, or for most Americans it does, but, but for people who have um, two brain cells and try to think about things, methodology doesn't pop out of nowhere. Methodology always has its roots in um, knowledge, what philosophers call epistemology. What Paul focuses on here with the term wisdom Wisdom is a key word in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And what Paul is showing here is how he proclaimed the gospel and how he taught the word in Corinth was a result of a certain view of wisdom that he had. So what he is saying is how you do what you do, your philosophy of ministry, and for those of you who... um, One day we'll be involved in a church either here or somewhere else looking for a pastor, trying to identify a pastor. This is extremely important. How you do what you do, how the pastor teaches, why he teaches the way he does, his philosophy of teaching, his philosophy of education is the direct result of his thinking about something called wisdom. And as I said earlier, this is what philosophers call epistemology. And epistemology in philosophy or knowledge or wisdom, and see, wisdom is a key concept for the Greeks. It was a key concept and key issue for Aristotle and for Plato. That comes out of something the philosophers call metaphysics. Now, these are words that are not in everybody's everyday vocabulary, so I want to make sure you understand and break it down a little bit so it's more palatable. Metaphysics has to do with ultimate reality or ultimate being, ultimate reality. In other words, what kind of view you have of a supreme deity, a god or gods, or just whatever ultimate reality there is in the universe. Is the ultimate reality in the universe 
just pure matter and energy, according to, as we have in Darwinism or evolutionary thought, or is ultimate reality involved in a in a deity? Is this deity multiple, as in polytheism, or in one God, a monotheistic or trinitarian God who has personality? See, it's it's awfully difficult, just speaking in terms of uh, basic uh, uh, basic rules of logic for personality to come from impersonality that's one of the problems just basic philosophical problem that that secular humanism has is how do you explain the development of personality from that which is impersonal how can a rock ultimately evolve into a person and can personality come from impersonality and see that's going to involve at that level an entire theory of personality so that in a theory of evolution, Darwinism, you ultimately work from the starting point of matter giving birth to man. You have to develop an entire theory of what is personality, what is the essence of man. Now think about this a minute. Now I'm really going to fry your brain cells a little bit. You have a theory of personality. Now any theory of personality is going to involve a certain amount of thinking about uh, thought, about thinking about the entire process of intellection, the entire process, therefore, of learning. Well, if you have a theory of personality that's predicated upon a Darwinian concept of reality from, uh, from pure matter that somehow develops into a personality, then your concept of how people think, how they learn, how they reason is going to, if you're logically consistent, uh, going to be uh, uh, logically related to that ultimate view of reality. So you've moved from an ultimate view of reality to a view of, of epistemology, how you think, how you learn. That is going to affect certain things like education theory. You're going to develop an entire theory of education is going to be based on how you understand human personality. How you understand human personality is going to be based on how you understand the ultimate reality of the universe. And so what we're, what I'm developing here for you is that if your ultimate view of reality is nothing more than, than a mass of, uh, of atoms and pure matter, then you're going to end up with an education theory that is related to that. However, if your view of ultimate reality is a supreme deity, that's going to change your view of personality. If your view of that supreme deity isn't just some sort of a formless deity, some sort of vague concept of a god, but is a Trinitarian God, as we have in the Scriptures, that has created man according to his image and in his likeness, then that is going to change your view and affect your view of human personality and the makeup of human personality and that that personality is immaterial and not material and that there is a soul and that soul is created in the image and likeness of God and therefore has value and significance because it's in the image and likeness of God. Furthermore, as a believer, you know that there was something called a fall and that when Adam sinned, it affected every aspect of his person, including his soul, so that his mentality, his emotions, his conscience were all affected by sin so that there is now a warped image of God, a distorted image of God. But nevertheless, it still has value because uh, a human being is originally created in the image and likeness of God, and that God has solved that problem. 
But because you have a theory of personality that is radically different from the evolutionary theory of personality, it's going to change your view of learning and how a person learns and why a person is supposed to learn. Because you see, in a, in a purely material universe, the only reason you ultimately have to learn, the only reason, the ultimate reason that you have to develop any kind of uh, uh, skills in life is for some sort of finite self-improvement. Ultimately, it deteriorates in, usually into pure materialism that I'm just here to get all the toys I can get. And like the bumper sticker says, whoever dies with the most money or the most toys wins. And there's nothing beyond that. But with a theory of personality derived from the scriptures and an understanding of the fall, you realize there's much more to life than simply material gain or material possessions or even uh, success in this life. It has to do with its impact uh, on eternity and what we call the spiritual life, which is development of that human spirit which we acquire at the instant of salvation and developing in our relationship to God, who, a God who has uh, communicated himself to us and informed us about the nature of reality. So you see, on the one hand, you have a view of intellection and learning that grows out of a pagan system of evolution that's pure human viewpoint, and that is going to always be contrasted to a biblical view of learning, divine viewpoint that is hopefully, and uh, not always, but hopefully developed, uh, by thinking through the implications of the biblical view of the soul and biblical view of personality, so you develop a biblical view of teaching and learning. So that as a believer, if you have thought these things through, your concept of education, the purpose of education, is going to be different from the concept of education from the person who operates on a purely human viewpoint, pagan concept of education. And the methodology, therefore, because your epistemology is different, your methodology is going to be different. How you educate people and the view of it, your view of education is going to also differ. And uh, that, this is one of the things that Paul is getting at here is he is not going to come to the Greeks, come to the Corinthians, emphasizing rhetoric, emphasizing oratorical skills, uh, as they did, that was the great entertainment in their day, was to go watch a good debate between a couple of uh, really sharp debaters and to uh, listen to them subtly put one another down, uh, paying attention to very uh, colorful uh, phraseology and, and all of the things that go along with rhetoric and oratory. The emphasis was on the skill, not on the content. It didn't matter uh, what they were debating for as long as they did it well. And see, that had its impact in the church, so they began to emphasize personality and methodology, and they would uh, look at Paul and say, well, Paul really wasn't that good of a teacher. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he points out the fact that when he was in Corinth, many of the people criticized him because he didn't he didn't speak well. He didn't have a apparently he didn't have a dynamic, charismatic personality. And, you know, this is one thing people always look for. It seems when they go to a church, they want a pastor that has a certain kind of personality, speaks a certain way, has a certain type of style. And if they don't have that, well, then they'll go on down and look for something else because they would rather, as Paul prophesied in, in 
First Timothy, what's going to happen in the church age is people will eventually get to the point where they reject the content and they would rather just be entertained. They want to have, they want to be inspired by a message. They want to go away feeling uplifted and feeling good. And yet the scripture says that the purpose for the communication gifts of the script, of the, of the spirit, the communication gifts of teaching and evangelism, which are operational today, and back in the apostolic period, the communication gifts of the apostle, communication gift of prophet, that the purpose for the communication was to teach. Romans 12.2 states it so clearly that the purpose there is to renew the thinking. There the verse reads, do not be conformed to the world, but uh, be renewed in your thinking. Have your, your thought renovated, just exchanging the kind of thinking that, that is cultural, the kind of thinking that comes out of the, the surrounding environment, to exchange that for the kind of thinking that God reveals to us in his word. And it is not something, uh, as I've used the illustration before, it's not hiring a, 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 a interior decorator could come in and change the wallpaper and paint the rooms a little different color and perhaps put on new drapes and buy some new furniture to spruce the place up. Well, God, the Holy Spirit, is going to come into your soul, and he's going to tear everything down, take it down to the to foundation and rip that out and replace it with the foundation that is Jesus Christ and then reconstruct your entire framework, frame of reference and, and frame of work of thinking on that on that principle, which ultimately is a grace principle. And we have to understand that and that there are different ways of doing things, but God has a way that is consistent with grace, and that impacts evangelism and witnessing. Witnessing is not a matter of developing certain techniques or skills. I remember when I was in seminary, we would be exposed to different techniques, and you have things like evangelism explosion, and then there were the techniques that were used by campus ministries like Campus Crusade and Navigators and some other groups. And some of these are fine, and some of them actually clearly present the gospel. But the problem that you always run into is somebody goes out and they witness to half a dozen people and have success. They come back and they package the formula, and they write a book about it, How to Win Souls to Christ. And the next thing you know, they're on television somewhere, and they've got a big seminar that they're taking around the country, teaching everybody to witness according to their particular pattern. And there's a problem with that because everybody's different. Some people part their hair on the left. Some people part their hair on the right. Some people don't ever part their hair. Some people like to wear more formal clothes. Some people don't wear formal clothes at all. Everybody's a different personality. And what uh, may appeal to one person in terms of an evangelistic methodology doesn't appeal to the next person in terms of evangelistic methodology. And one of the traps that people fall into is they try to have some set way of always witnessing. And uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it does, doesn't. And as you grow and mature in the Christian life, you need to come to an understanding of, uh, of the gospel and letting the Holy Spirit use you in witnessing. And one day, maybe one way and with another person another way, but you only learn that in the process of growing and maturing. But Paul's point in the first part of chapter 2 is that he is not approaching the gospel ministry from the framework of human viewpoint techniques, methodology, or wisdom. It says in verse 1, which we covered the first five verses last time. I just want to review them briefly. Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom. And by those two terms, he's emphasizing the methodology of, of the Greek culture, uh, the emphasis in oratory, 
was on excellence of speech, the turn of the phrase, and wisdom in terms of philosophical wisdom. Remember, he's answering those three questions that he raised in 120. Where is the philosopher? And he answered that question in chapter 1, verses 21 through 29. Then uh, the second question in 120 was, where is the scribe, that is, the Jewish legalist? And he answered that question, verses 30 and 31, emphasizing the principle that it's not it's not up to our own works, our own efforts. It is God's work uh, exclusively, so there's nothing left in us to boast about. And then the third question is, where where is the debater of this age? And that is really what he's addressing in 1 through uh, 7. And then in verse 8, he begins the transition into the overall issue here, and that is a divine viewpoint understanding of how we know what we know, and we'll get there next Sunday morning. So he emphasizes the fact that it's not up to, it's not based on human methodology. When you witness, it's not based on mastering certain skills, certain abilities, being able to say it just the right way. It is based upon the power of God. It is the gospel itself that has power. According to Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God. It's not your education. It's not your skill. It's not your personality. It's not even your spiritual gift because you don't have to have the spiritual gift of evangelism to successfully witness to people. In fact, every believer is expected to be an ongoing witness to the gospel, explaining the gospel to friends and family and anyone they come in contact with. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, For I am determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the key principle in evangelism, is keep the issue on the cross. Now, people raise all kinds of other questions, and that's true, but don't become distracted. Many of those answers, or many of those questions can't be answered uh, at that point in time, and they won't understand the answers until they have a frame of reference in the Scriptures. Keep the issue on the gospel. That, ha- that is it. Verse 3, Paul says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And there I pointed to out the fact that even Paul at times, uh, when he's in the midst of an environment that uh, where there's a lot of hostility as he had faced in Athens, uh, when he faces failure, as we all do when we're witnessing, uh, sometimes it causes us to be a little uh, scared, a little uh, intimidated in certain situations. But nevertheless, Paul did not allow that to control him. That's the difference between somebody who's brave and somebody who's a coward. It's not the fact that they're afraid. It's that they let the fear control them. If you let the fear control you and if you're intimidated and don't witness, then you are letting fear control you and you are uh, out of fellowship and a failure as far as that responsibility as, as a believer priest goes. Verse 4, Paul said, My speech, my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. In other words, I made, he, Paul is saying, I made it a point that I was not going to come to you and communicate to you using the forms and the methodology that you were used to from orators and from teachers. Because that would, then that form becomes the issue rather than the content. And the issue is not human technique or human skill. The issue is God the Holy Spirit. He is the sovereign executor in evangelism. 
Point uh, verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So in evangelism, the issue is not us. It's not our skills. It's not our power or ability. It is the power and ability of the gospel itself and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now let's go over some points related to the doctrine of witnessing. Point number one, every believer in Jesus Christ is in full-time Christian service from the moment of faith in Christ. From the instant you believe in Jesus Christ, you're in full-time Christian service. You may not be a paid professional Christian service, but you're still in full-time Christian service. It is a responsibility of every believer to communicate the gospel to anyone and everyone that they can just as it is the responsibility of every believer to give financially to support a local church. It's the responsibility of every believer to be involved in prayer. All of, that, all of these activities are functions of our priesthood. And we, every believer becomes a priest unto God at the instant of salvation, as we'll see. So we have to, we have to recognize that every one of us is in full-time Christian service, and that includes evangelism. Point number two, full-time Christian service relates to your royal priesthood and your royal ambassadorship. At salvation, every believer immediately becomes a royal priest and a royal ambassador. That's part of the 40 spiritual realities that take place at salvation for every believer. If you want to know what those 40 spiritual realities are, you can look in your bulletin because uh, Al has been doing a great job with the bulletin, and he has been including a section on the 40 things God provides every believer at the moment of salvation. And he usually gets two or three points in the bulletin every week. And so if you're consistent and save your bulletin, you'll get all 40 of them eventually. But this is part of the package that God gives every believer at the instant of salvation. You are a priest under God, and you are a royal ambassador. Third point, let's look at the first aspect, that is the priesthood aspect. A priest is a member of the human race who represents the human race or some portion of it before God. In the church age, that is the age since the day of Pentecost, the age in which we live, in the church age, every believer is a royal priest. In the Old Testament, you were only a priest if you were from the tribe of Levi. But in the church age, every believer is a royal priest and represents himself or herself directly to God. Notice the role of the priest is to represent the human race or a portion of it to God. It is God-directed. That's important. I'm going to make an application of that before we close out this point. But remember that the priesthood is always directed toward God. It's not God toward man. The prophet was the one who represented God to man. Don't confuse the two. A lot of people confuse them because they're, they're not clear or precise in their understanding of Scripture. Let's look at a couple of Scriptures to substantiate this point. First Peter 2.5, Peter says, You also, that is you believers, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then in Revelation 1.6, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him, be, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Also look up Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. Now there are three primary areas of Christian service that relate to your priesthood. Area number one is to learn Bible doctrine. 
that is part of your responsibility as a believer is to as a believer priest is to learn doctrine because doctrine teaches you how to function as a priest only as we learn the word of god are we able to renovate our thinking and learn how to function correctly in our priesthood second primary area of christian service related to our priesthood is prayer we have access to God as believer priests, immediate access to God. Hebrews tells us that we are therefore to come boldly before the throne of grace. Giving. Giving is a responsibility of our priesthood. Giving is designed to support the uh, local church ministry, to support missions. It's part of our responsibility to have a, um, have, have a vision for financially supporting a ministry. This is uh, part of what goes on in, in, um, in the tape ministry. One of the interesting things that interesting um, points of discussion that's going on today in different tape ministries that are grace based has to do with things like the internet and making things available on the internet because one of the things that has been historically true in, in most tape ministries that most of us are familiar with is that there is a more of a personal contact. It may be through the mail, but there's more of a personal contact because people would have to mail in an order whenever they wanted a, a, a tapes, and they became associated with a particular ministry, and certain people would gain a vision for supporting that ministry. Their, their, their donations to that ministry aren't simply there to uh, pay for the tapes. Usually people start off that way. They, they think they're earning something, so they're, they're, they have that, that works-oriented mentality, so they're, they're buying tapes rather than supporting a ministry. But that's not the principle of grace of a grace ministry. Grace ministry is designed to provide the teaching of the Word of God for as many people as possible, and money isn't the issue. Well, you come along with the Internet, and it becomes even more impersonal. People can come in. They can order 10, 15, 20 tapes. Now, we're at the verge of changing something. See, what's going to happen is that in the next few years with the new technology, and some of it we're about to implement, is you're going to be able to develop a CD with MP3 format messages on it where you can take 60 or 70 hours and put it on one CD. So instead of getting 60 or 70 tapes and having that ongoing interaction with the ministry, somebody's going to be able to say, okay, I want the Galatians series, and they'll get one CD with 70 lessons on it. It may take them six months before they uh, can listen to all of that and have their next contact with that ministry. Now, in the old model that people operated on, where they were thinking, oh, every month they would order a certain number of tapes and they would send in a check every month, People don't always do that. Let's be honest. When it comes down to it, we forget to send in a check. We forget to support the ministry. That happens all the time. God provides. Is this? I'm not making a legalistic, uh, uh, dunning, legalistically dunning people for money here. I'm just explaining some of the realities. Well, one of the things that people are discussing in this is that if we break down and people are getting two or three CDs with all this doctrine on there, then it breaks down their involvement with that particular ministry on a regular mailing or regular contact basis. And so what happens, and this, this happened in one doctrinal church I know of where they put the, um, uh, they were putting their, their midweek Bible classes live on the Internet because they were in a large metropolitan area. People were coming from all over that area, so it was difficult for them to get off work in time to get home and then get to Bible class. And when, once they started putting the Bible classes live on the Internet during the week, uh, attendance dropped about 50%, and when attendance dropped, giving dropped. 
Now, we may sit back and idealistically think about, well, it's grace ministry and God provides, but the bottom line is we're all fallible and we all forget. And if we don't show up, we know this, when we've had to cancel a church on Sunday morning due to snow or some other reason, that that what happens is nobody shows up and drops their uh, check in the box that week, and then they forget to double up the next week. Bills don't change. Bills are always the same. And uh, so it's sort of, you know, that that's part of that legalistic mentality that, well, I wasn't there this Sunday, so I'm not going to pay for anything, instead of gaining that vision of an, of an overall ministry and supporting that ministry. Well, that's part of our priesthood is to support a ministry financially because of what God is doing through that ministry and not the idea that, well, we're just paying for this week's worth of food or we're, not, we're just paying for this order of tapes or whatever it might be. But it's interesting how things are going to work out because um, uh, and how this will impact. We just have to go slowly to see if uh, putting out uh, CDs with a vast number of lessons on them ends up uh, impacting that. It does. It has in other ministries. And it's just something I think people need to be taught a little bit about and brought to their attention, not to become uh, lazy or lax just because they get uh, get get a CD with uh, 40 or 50 or 60 lessons on it and they don't have contact with that ministry again. The ministry still needs to function. Any ministry, any tape ministry, uh, usually mo- and most of them much larger than ours where they have actually have paid personnel. We run everything with volunteers here, but with uh, when they have paid paid um, paid people, whether or not people are ordering tapes or not, they still have to pay the salaries of those people on staff. And those people on staff are ultimately the ones who make it possible to, for the CDs to be made and everything else to be done. So uh, it, it, there's a real concept here uh, in, in giving as a priest, recognizing your responsibilities to support a ministry financially. Well, those are three primary areas of Christian service related to our priesthood, learning doctrine, prayer, and giving. A fourth area is described in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And there we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that purpose clause, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the purpose for your priesthood is for you to proclaim, and there the word is keruso again, which is preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness. In other words, proclaiming the gospel, explaining the gospel to those you come in contact with. Understanding that God has a plan and purpose for your life. You are where you are at your job. Now, I am not suggesting that you take company time to witness to everybody. You'll probably get fired if you do. But wherever you are in life, you are developing friendships and relationships with people. And one of the reasons you might be there is for God to use you to get the gospel to those who are not saved. Just because you uh, don't witness to them on company time doesn't mean you never have any opportunity to visit with them uh, on break time or any other time. And I know that some of you have, uh, have been very diligent in communicating the gospel to folks that you work with. But that's part of witnessing and the responsibility for every single believer. It's part of our priesthood. Now, remember I said priesthood is God-related. There's always there's one group of one denomination, and every year it seems like they do a battle for the Bible. 
and battle over interpretation, and it has always galled me because I all, the slogan you always hear them say is that, well, every believer is a priest, so every believer has a right to interpret the Bible they want, the, any way they, they, they want to. And in other words, what they're really going after is the, they're, they're attacking the old dogma position that you find in some older denominations that, well, you just go along with whatever the church tells you to believe where there's no biblical instruction at all. But when you use the priesthood that way, you're, you show you don't understand the priesthood. Priesthood is not uh, related to God communicating to man, but man communicating to God. And the priesthood has nothing to do with interpreting the Scriptures or understanding the Scriptures. And what happens when they say that is that they, they uh, always end up promoting some level of subjectivism. The Bible can't be interpreted any way anybody wants to. It doesn't mean one thing to one person and one thing to some, somebody else. And the priesthood doesn't support that view. Uh, every believer has a right to be a fool, but not every but being a fool is not part of your priesthood. Well, the second area related to witnessing goes from priesthood to our royal ambassadorship. Witnessing is a function of Christian service in relationship to being a royal ambassador. Now, an ambassador, I want to cover this in about eight subpoints. Eight subpoints on point number four. First of all, an ambassador is a high-ranking minister of state or royalty sent from one country to another country to represent his sovereign or his country or his government. By analogy, as believers, we are a spiritual aristocracy. As members of the royal family of God, our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. And Christ is the king who has sent us into a foreign country, that is, the world, in order to communicate the message of how to become a Christian and how to have citizenship in heaven. So we are sent to represent him, and every believer from the instant of salvation becomes a citizen of heaven and is here on the earth to represent the kingdom of heaven. Point number two, at salvation, every believer enters the royal family of God through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. And at that same instant, he becomes a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. So ambassadorship stems from being in union with Christ. It is one of those 40 things that happens to us at salvation. Point number three, each church-age believer is a member of the royal family of God, representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords during his life on the earth. So you're either going to be a good representative or a bad representative, but guess what? You are a representative. You can't avoid that. Point number four, ambassadorship emphasizes that every believer is in full-time Christian service. Now, that is going to differ to some degree because of your spiritual gifts. That's point number five. Ambassadors function with different spiritual gifts. But certain things apply to every ambassador, and one thing that applies to every ambassador is witnessing. Now, some people have the spiritual gift of evangelism, and that just means they're going to be more successful uh, than others. They're just going to have a special ability and inclination that way, but that doesn't excuse those who don't have the gift of evangelism from not evangelizing. Point number six, Christian service related to your royal ambassadorship includes witnessing uh, missionary operation, which includes evangelism to uh, foreign countries, 
Ambassadorship includes the use of your spiritual gift, which may be directed towards the edification of believers, and it may involve administrative work in many areas of of a responsibility in Christian organization and groups. And that reminds me of a challenge I put forth a couple of weeks ago, and that is that uh, some of you young men in your late 20s and 30s need to be looking to the fact that you are the future leadership of this church, and you need to be thinking in terms of that responsibility. That, too, is part of your priesthood and part of your ambassadorship. If you look at the current board of deacons, Many of these men have been serving as deacons since they were your age. And uh, yet, one of the things that has been noted by a couple of them is very few men in their 20s or 30s in this church seem to be stepping to the plate of uh, responsibility and leadership responsibility in this congregation uh, like they did when they were in their 20s or 30s. And yet, um, eventually, they are going to be moving on, some of them sooner than others. And they're going to need to be replaced. And so there constantly needs to be a a sort of a system of uh, training and preparation of young men so that they can step in and fill fill the gap of leadership on the Board of Deacons. And, of course, one of the things that is important is not to wait till you're tapped on the shoulder, but to indicate uh, your ability to handle that responsibility simply by uh, showing a little initiative and taking on responsibility for doing some of the things that need to be done around here. So Christian service relates to many different categories, and part of your ambassadorship is serving in a local church, serving on a deacon board. Uh, Point number seven, a nation's ambassador does not support himself. Likewise, as ambassadors, we are supported in Satan's domain by God's logistical grace. God supports us and supplies us with every need uh, we have in order to keep us alive on this planet so that we can fulfill our responsibilities as ambassadors. An ambassador has his instructions in written form. We have our instructions in the completed canon of Scripture. An ambassador doesn't belong to the country to which he is sent, and we don't belong to our country. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. That doesn't negate patriotism but it overrides patriotism at times. An ambassador does not regard insults or rejection as being personal. And we, too, as believers, should not regard rejection of the gospel as a personal insult or personal rejection. And then finally, in terms of this analogy with a, with a uh, nation's ambassador, the recall of an ambassador is tantamount to a declaration of war, And at the end of the church age, all believer ambassadors are going to be recalled to heaven, and that is virtually God's declaration of war and the outpouring of the wrath of God on the earth during the tribulation. Now, there's a contrast between priests and ambassadors. A priest is invisible, but an ambassador is visible. The operation of the ambassador is is visible. As a priest, uh, you're involved in giving, but that's invisible. But as an ambassador, you're more involved in witnessing, and that may be more visible. As a priest, a priest emphasizes your relationship with God, whereas ambassadorship emphasizes your relationship with men. Uh, The priesthood functions in private, whereas an ambassador functions in public. The priest is involved in learning doctrine. The ambassador is going to be involved in relating doctrine to people. 
The priest is focusing on his own spiritual advance and spiritual growth, whereas ambassadorship is going to focus on your spiritual service. So just some points to help you understand the importance of your ambassadorship in Christ. That was all under point number four. And point number five is that witnessing then is the operation of your responsibility as a royal ambassador. We are all required to be involved in witnessing. So the question therefore becomes, how do you become an effective witness? Well, it begins by understanding some basic scriptures. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 18, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, reconciliation summarizes everything that Christ did on the cross. When he paid the penalty for our sins, the barrier is removed so that we can have access to God by simply faith alone in Christ alone. The ministry of reconciliation is communicating that reality to those who are ignorant of it. When we exercise the ministry of reconciliation, we are explaining to people how they are and can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8 states it a different way. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That happened historically. Or, excuse me, I jumped ahead here. First, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5.19 goes on to say, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is our message as believers, is to communicate the gospel so that people will be reconciled to God. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Speaking to the disciples, that was historically fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And then in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, we have the verse known as the Great Commission, where Jesus is directing to the disciples and through the disciples, all believers, the methodology of evangelism and teaching in the church age. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Making disciples means to make learners, to make students of people. It's not simply a matter of evangelism. It is to make people students of the Word. Make students of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Those are two participles. They're participles of means, and they indicate the means for creating students. First, baptism. Baptism here is not a means of salvation, but it is what took place in the early church at salvation. People would become saved, make a profession of faith, and then they would be uh, baptized. They would be immersed in water immediately thereafter. So uh, baptism here it indicates salvation and emphasizes personal evangelism. And then secondly, by teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. It doesn't stop at salvation. It goes on to instruction. And Jesus said to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So we're to teach the whole counsel of God, not just come to church to have a little inspirational message. The church age believers has two areas of responsibility in witnessing for Christ. 
The first area of responsibility is the witness of the life. We are to live a life that manifests the grace of God. Now, we're all going to fail, and we're all sinners, and no believer is perfect, but our life is still an evidence of what Christ has done, what the grace of God has done in our lives. Secondly, there's the witness of words. This is the verbal witness of our of our life, where we are communicating the gospel. You can't win anybody to Christ. You can't explain the gospel to anybody simply by living a, a, a good life, living a Christian life. Just because you have a nonverbal witness doesn't mean anybody's going to understand that Christ is the only way to salvation. That is, the uh, your your life is simply one aspect of that, but the important aspect is the witness of words. Eighth point, always remember that God the Holy Spirit is the sovereign executive of witnessing. No matter what, it depends on the Holy Spirit, not you, not your technique, not being able to give the right answer, but just being able to clearly explain the truth, and the Holy Spirit then works with that, according to John 16, verses 7 through 11. Ninth point, don't get sidetracked by false issues. First of all, sin is not an issue in salvation. Christ paid the penalty for all sins. The issue is Jesus Christ. Don't get sidetracked in the fact that some people will say, well, you can't believe what happened to me. I had this situation happen here with one individual who visited one time, and this person's been here really several times over the four years I've been here. Incidentally, as of today, I've been here four years. How about that? My, how time flies when you're having fun. Uh, he, this guy's been here several times, and uh, he, he can't understand the grace of God. He can't understand how God would save him because of some terrible things that have happened in his life. And one day he actually started describing them to me, and I had to shut him up because they were so perverted and so perverse that I just didn't want to have all that going through my head. And I was just, um, if, I, if I wasn't unshockable, I would have been just appalled. Some of you just couldn't believe that anybody like that ever darkened the door of this church. But this guy had been involved in some horrendous sins. And uh, he just couldn't understand that God could still love him. Well, that's sin. It's not the issue. The issue is not what's happened to you in the past. Everybody's done bad things. Sin, we're going to get into this second hour. Folks, sin is sin. Self-righteousness is to God as horrible and as heinous and as evil as pederasty. Now, most of us sit around and think of a pedophile, and with all the stuff going on in the news, we can't avoid it right now. We think of pedophilia as something that's horrendous, that on our scale of horrible sins, that's got to be one of the worst. But, you know, that's not even mentioned when God says there are six sins that that, uh, I abominate. That's not mentioned as one of them. Arrogance is the worst sin, and uh, most people don't ever even think about arrogance. Self-righteousness and legalism, uh, let's think about somebody who proclaims the gospel of lordship, salvation, or gospel of works, that you're saved by doing good or by getting involved in ritual or or, uh, some other legalistic approach. That's the most evil thing because you've distracted people from the truth, and instead of going to heaven, they're going to end up in hell. What could be more evil than that? But see, we, 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 we focus so much on overt issues. Don't get distracted by sin. Make Christ the issue. Don't get involved in an argument. The issue is not who's right or who's wrong. The issue is just to make the gospel clear. Uh, avoid issues like your own personal opinions, uh, legalistic standards, what happened at this church or that church, politics. Don't get distracted by those things. 
Uh, don't get distracted by trying to prove that the Bible is the Word of God. You can spend hours and hours and hours trying to do that, and in some cases you might eventually succeed, and the person still doesn't accept Christ. That is not the issue. Don't get uh, distracted by trying to prove that Christ uh, was raised from the dead. There's a extremely liberal the, uh, divinity uh, professor up at Harvard Divinity School who actually admits that, yes, Christ did rise from the dead. That doesn't prove he was God. That doesn't prove anything because, after all, there's all kinds of anomalies we can't explain in the universe. So don't get distracted by trying to prove secondary issues. Focus on the gospel. Uh, point number 10, memorize five or six key verses for salvation. Verses like Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, John 3.16, John 3.18. These are some good verses to emphasize and memorize so that you can use them when you're explaining the gospel. Point number 11, avoid subjectivity. Don't get involved in emotionalism. Don't try to uh, get them to trust Christ on the basis of guilt. Don't try to uh, uh, get them saved on the basis of fear of eternal damnation. Uh, Focus on the biblical evidence that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that he died on the cross for our sins. And then our own attitude uh, should be that of Paul in Romans 1, 14 through 16, recognizing, first of all, that we are under obligation to communicate the gospel. Romans 1, 15, that we should be eager to proclaim the gospel. And Romans 1, 16, that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. Well, those are... 12 basic points on evangelism, and then we'll get back into our verse 6 starting next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to study your word and be challenged with our responsibilities as believer priests to proclaim the gospel, that the issue in salvation is clearly communicating the truth but recognizing that the ultimate results belong to God the Holy Spirit. It's not up to us in the final analysis. It's not our skills. It's not our techniques. It is the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the fact that salvation is based on grace, that it's not based on who we are or what we do. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the penalty for every sin, past, present, and future on the cross, so that sin is no longer the issue. If you're here this morning and you're unsure of your salvation, uncertain of your eternal destiny, this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain for all eternity. All you have to do is accept the free gift of salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ. The issue is clear in Scripture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of doing good. It's not a matter of church attendance, ritual observance, or any other human factor. It is simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins and trusting in him alone for your eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would uh, use the things that we have studied today in our own spiritual life, that we might continue to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.